Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. If you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. Build a website, put yourself on the internet, and have fun doing it with a simple and intuitive process. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Chris Gethard is one of my favorite comedians. When I used to live in New York, I went to a public access TV station where he was running what's become now the Chris Gethard Show. And his work's fantastic. And he has a podcast on Earwolf. It's called Beautiful Anonymous. They have a special episode coming up with guest co-host Katie Couric. You know Katie Couric from everything. Chris and Katie talked to a queer caller going through one of the most meaningful and stressful changes in their life. And Beautiful Anonymous is the perfect show to get into a subject like that. It was featured on This American Life. They have tons of other great episodes. Hear past episodes of Beautiful Anonymous and subscribe for new ones in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also full of breakfast meats. I was up early today. I said to myself, hey, Pop Pop gets a treat. And I took myself out for, among other foods, turkey sausage and bacon. Carnivore biathlon, baby. That championship meat consumption makes me feel like I could run through a wall it also reminds me of an excellent editorial that I read recently. I'm going to quote it to you here. It comes from a writer named Mary Hinman Abel, and she says, quote, We are no longer a nation of farmers living in sight of our own food supply. The journey between us and our food supply, once only as long as from our own field and garden to our back door, has been lengthening year by year. End quote. Let me tell you something, Mary Hinman Abel gets it, right? She gets how life is in 2017, where we're all city-dwelling future nerds with no survival skills and no connection to the land, totally out of touch with the real America of the past. Also, fun fact, Mary wrote that in the year 1905. Uh, surprise, I pranked you very gently to make a point because even the Americans of over 100 years ago felt far away from their food supply, felt disconnected from the process that turns live animals into tasty hamburgers. And that's what we're talking about today. I'm joined in the studio by cracked writer-performer Carmen Angelica. She is a vegetarian and comedian and swell person from the great state of Minnesota. And our guest on the phone is Maureen Ogle. Maureen is a historian out of Ames, Iowa, who's written an amazing book called In Meat We Trust. That's the book where I found Mary Hinman Abel's quote, because Maureen's book traces the entire food history of the United States from European colonization to today. And her food history focuses on meat, because America is uniquely awesome at meat. No nation in human history makes more of it or eats more of it. Industrial meat production determined the way you and I eat today. And that goes for everybody. I don't care if you're vegetarian. I don't care if you're vegan, like I briefly was at one point. It's fine. Leave me alone. No matter what your diet is, factory-style meat farming makes your diet possible. 
Here's one reason why. Meat production made all foods available year-round. You were able to eat the fruit or vegetable of your choice today because in the late 1800s, a meat manufacturer named Gustavus Swift set up a logistical system that let him raise, slaughter, package, and ship all kinds of meat to all parts of the United States year-round. He rolled out refrigerated train cars, moved animal slaughter facilities out of city centers, and geared animal life cycles to fit a 24-7, 365, American meat demand. Once that was set up, we expected every food to be available on demand, fruits and vegetables piggybacked, pun intended, onto Swift's supply train. And delicate foods like oranges went from being a rare regional treat in 1875 to being a national year-round staple by 1900. That's just one way American meat changed your life. And there are so many more. If you're not a Native American, meat probably convinced your ancestors to migrate here. As Maureen says in her book, a pretty rich European of a few centuries ago would eat meat two or three times a week. Tops. Meanwhile, American colonists were so good at raising hogs from the get-go that they'd just let hogs run loose all over the land unsupervised because there was so much meat to go around. And there's more. Did you know the Department of Agriculture was founded by the Civil Wartime Union Congress in 1862, specifically to fill the American West with cows? Did you know that in 1917, in the face of national protests over meat prices, President Woodrow Wilson almost nationalized the American meat industry? And did you know the average American basically never ate chicken until less than 100 years ago? That's right, chicken. Basically, every American has a grocery store and a fast food joint within, uh, uh, let's say, a half hour's drive of their location, serving affordable chicken all day. Before the 1930s, that situation sounded like science fiction. Anyway, that's enough of me reeling off meat facts. I do love them, but let's get into this episode. So please sit back or keep eating that brisket that you're eating right now at Horse Thief Barbecue in downtown L.A., my favorite place. I know that's very specific, but I hope I catch someone there in the middle of eating. It freaks them out. Anyway, please enjoy this talk with Carmen Angelica in our L.A. studio and Maureen Ogle dialing in from beautiful downtown Ames, Iowa. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I always like to describe a book to listeners, but I feel like you could just describe it better. Tell us in general what the book is about. This book looks at Americans' relationship with meat, M-E-A-T, since the colonial period, although the focus of most of the book is the mid-20th century on. But in general, it looks at Americans' relationship to meat, which is one of entitlement. That's the word I use. We feel like we're entitled to be. <laughs> yeah. In particular, uh, toward the end of the book, you say, summing it up, there's a line that says, if meets American history tells us anything, it is that we Americans generally get what we want. Um, what, what have we wanted over time? What have we wanted meat to be for us? We want it to be available anytime that we want it, and we want it to cost virtually nothing. And we don't want to know anything at all about how it gets into our plates. USA, USA. No, I don't, I'm just very inspired by us uh, in this moment. We sound great. <laughs> in talking about food, I feel like that's a subject that has been, it's somewhat fraught in the public discourse. Like often people are either very pro-meat, I guess I would call it, or very anti-meat. 
And I feel like this book is right down the middle. It's it's almost more impressed by the system that we've built in order to deliver meat. Would okay. would you say that's true? Here's how I would answer that. I, I first of all, I'm a historian. I have zero skin in the game, no pun intended. And when I started this book, I didn't know anything at all about how meat gets on the table. I didn't eat much meat. I, I haven't eaten much meat for years and years. And, I, and I've lived in Iowa my whole life, I should add that. And I don't think I've ever been on a farm as near as I can remember, despite having lived here for well over a half century. And I just started the book. Well, my brain told me to do this, but what it told me was this would be a good way to explore the thing that fascinates me most as a historian, and that is what does it mean to be an American? With a completely blank brain, no agenda, knew nothing at all about the so-called food debate that's been ongoing for quite some time now in this country. And I got to say, <laughs> it came as a kind of a surprise to me to discover that there was so much controversy. I, I just thought it would be a good way, you know, a good vehicle, a good window, a good lens for looking at what it means to be an American. And boy, was I in for a long ride. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That's interesting, though, because also you, you mentioned earlier that you, so you're born and raised in Iowa, and you said you also haven't really come into Either you haven't lived on a farm, you said, or you haven't come into contact with farming. Is that right? I, I'm 63, and to the best of my knowledge, I've never actually been on a farm. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know people think we all live on farms, you know. I, I live in a city. I'm a, I'm a very typical American in that I live in an urban environment, and until I wrote this book, didn't know the first thing about where food comes from. I'd never given it any thought at all, and now I am deeply impressed at the complexity of getting food on the table. Yeah, and I, I think that's not uncommon. Like, you both talked a little bit about how much you eat meat ever. I eat meat now. I was briefly vegan at one point. It was never ethical. It was it was just because I thought it would be healthier. Um, but I, I eat meat now. And then also, uh, I think we're all from the Midwest. I'm from yeah. outside of Chicago. and I'm then from Carmen, Minnesota. Minnesota, okay. yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know about you, Carmen. I also, I was from the city suburbs, so it was very urban, but I very rarely came into contact with farming ever. Yeah, I would say the, the few times we would is, is when we would do field trips to farms. Right. I remember the Minnesota State Fair, you would learn a lot about like farming and dairy products and, and like uh, essentially how right. it got to your table. But it wasn't in depth. It was, it was just like that one day. You yeah, probably learn about that's it. right. Yeah, yeah. I just went to the Iowa State Fair last week, where I've been going for years and years and years. And it's true. I mean, if you want to see livestock, that's the best place to see it. But those are animals that are there to win competitions. It, it has nothing to do with food production and distribution and the logistics of it. So yeah, I think yeah. I think. Well, apparently, we're all all three of us are very average Americans. We don't know a thing <laughs> about how food gets. Especially that experience of farming being something you actively take a trip to experience and a thing you actively right. seek yeah. to just, you, you like put it on your calendar, like I will experience farming on Saturday. That's mm -hmm. when we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, For an right. afternoon. Yeah. And my mom is from Iowa and I remember a trip to the Iowa State Fair being when I found out like, 
there's a hall of people telling you all different things about how crops are made and which tractor parts are the best ones to use. And there's a pumpkin that's over 700 pounds. And I felt like I learned quite a bit. (laughs) But in actuality, I I think I had more of a, a tourist experience of it. Oh, yeah. When we were there last week, my my kids who live in New York City said, you know, you can really tell who's actually a farmer at the Iowa State Fair because the people who aren't farmers are wearing stupid shoes for walking around at a fair, which is true. <laughs> you know, they're True. It's true. I'm pretty sure I had those stupid shoes. And I, you know what? I guess, yeah, I, you're right. I should get better <laughs> shoes because there is a lot. There's a lot of, you know, poo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, right, right. I mean, nobody in their right mind would walk around a farm in a pair of flip-flops, you know. So, yeah, you can always tell the. And the other thing is, of course, farmers make up much less than percent of the population. There are... a very small number of farmers in the United States. And the word farmer encompasses everything from people who grow hops for beer, grow rice in the South, to people who grow corn here in Iowa for ethanol, to people who grow wheat. That's one thing I found out pretty fast when I started writing this book. There's, no, there's really no such thing as a farmer. There, there are farmers. A point that I do make in the book, because A rice farmer in the southeastern United States doesn't have anything in common with a hops farmer who works the land in Oregon or Washington, and they don't have anything in common at all with livestock producers in Georgia or Colorado who in turn have nothing whatsoever in common with farmers in Iowa who raise corn who in turn don't actually have anything in common with people who raise grapes. So there are, you know, there are all kinds of farmers, but there's no such thing as a farmer. One, you know, one size does not fit all. And it's a low percentage of the population, right? Because one thing that amazed me in the book is that... That's right. Fewer than 2% of adults in this country actually earn their living directly in agriculture. They may work for, say, Monsanto, but that's part of agribusiness rather than farming. So it's, I think last time I looked, it's just slightly over 1% of the working population is responsible for the food that we eat, which when you yeah. think about it, is pretty amazing. I feel like we beat nature. We did it. You know what I mean? Like we <laughs> only, only one out of 100 of us have to grow food and the rest of us are fine. I think that's pretty amazing. And yeah, there are all these people who are opposed to so-called agribusiness, agro-farming, factory farming, who, as near as I can tell, really want all of us to toss our iPads aside and move to the countryside and grow food. And I'm, I'm not volunteering to do that. When the revolution comes, I want to be sent someplace else if possible. I, I have no interest in working on a farm, frankly. It's real hard work. And financially, yeah. it's a tremendous gamble. So no thanks. Well, and it would have to be a specific type of farm because I imagine it's hard to juggle all the different things you'd be growing or or like you said you know the rice farming that's right very different I mean job than right corn farming exactly and the people who are going into farming now their niches are in effect what they're doing is going after the groovy consumer the people who go to farmers markets the people who shop at Whole Foods but it's all the same you know it's real hard to make a living without farming there's a reason we have agricultural subsidies because without them the reality is nobody would stay in farming, and our food would cost 100% more than it does right now. Right now, on average, we Americans spend about 11% of our income on food. That is way lower than anybody else in the world. 
And we all piss and moan if the price of food goes up. So, you know, if we, if we actually eliminated agricultural subsidies, I got news for everybody. You'd have to work five jobs just to feed yourself, and you would not be able to buy the next edition of the iPhone. But I want the iPhone. <laughs> well, then, you have to make a decision. What do you want? Do you want inexpensive food, or do you want groovy food that costs a fortune? It is a conundrum. That's one thing I, I really got into my brain. The food in this country is very, very cheap, and there's something almost Kafkaesque about complaining about that, because if food wasn't as cheap, we'd all be complaining. And the only reason we can complain about our so-called food system is because we're so affluent and we don't have to worry about food. In the world are not in a position to bitch about their food systems. They, they're, they're just not. They, you know, food is very pricey. I think my biggest complaint about the food critics, the people who say our food system is broken, is that, man, you have got way too much time on your hands and you should find some worthwhile way to spend your energy. It's kind of maddening. If you really dig into what makes the food system tick, it's kind of maddening to listen to people who don't know a thing about it complain about it. One thing that jumped out to me in your book is it seems like that kind of complaint has existed forever. You, you draw a lot of parallels between meat prices being sort of like gas prices have been the last few decades where people freak out if the ga price of gas goes up and then they stop thinking about if it goes back down. Uh, it sounds like all generations have been angry about the cost of beef. That's the point I made right at the beginning about entitlement, and that's how I opened the book. In the colonial period, the people who settled what eventually became the United States, at the eastern seaboard of North America, came from Europe where food was always scarce, always, for everybody. The only people who ate meat in Europe were kings and queens. But once they got here, there was land everywhere, and anybody could own a cow for milk or a steer or lots of pigs. There were so many hogs running around that they were a nuisance. And Americans quickly, the colonists quickly developed an astonishing sense of entitlement about meat that simply would have been unthinkable in any other part of the world. And nothing has changed since then. We have always been quick to complain when the price of meat goes up by, say, a penny. Because yeah. we're, we really have, we live in a society and have for decades and generation after generation in which it is so abundant so inexpensive, and yet now people want to complain about it. So I don't know. It seems sort of absurd. Going through your book, you, you do learn, like, how this was developed. Like you said, it, it came with, like, you know, people had could own a cow, and then as they, you know, they got accustomed to three meals of meat a day, we developed a system that would feed that, that want. That's right. Do you think that people who want to change it, I mean, do you think at this point it's just, like, past the point of changing the system that we've built? Well, part of, part of the problem with the American meat-making system is that it really and truly and always has been built to serve a global audience. It's not just designed to feed Americans. That's a big point that never even crossed my mind until I researched this book. So there, there's one big thing right there. It isn't just us here in the United States who benefit. Everybody in the planet benefits from our meat-making system. So to dismantle that means there would be a ripple effect across the globe. So that's one issue. 
The second point is agriculture requires land, and especially in the past 100 years, we have systematically been turning land into cities, in effect. And as I note in the book early on, the most obvious thing about people who live in cities is the thing that it's the easiest to overlook. They don't make their own food. So if you're going to have an urban population, have schools readily available, have an educated populace that doesn't work on the land, you're going to have to figure out some way to make food from that for them. And at this point, if we were to just dismantle the system, not only would there be global ramifications, where in the world would we get the land? We would have to start bulldozing highways and malls, which probably are going to get bulldozed anyway. But if you want to change the system we have now, which is very intensive, to an extensive system, we would have to figure out where to get the land. And we would have to figure out where to get the labor to do the work. And again, I think pretty sure that if you just went out on the street and said to people, yo, you want to quit your job and go work seven days a week, sunrise to sunset, making food, odds are high people are going to say no. So the system is not perfect. That's clear. But if we dismantle it, we better have something in place as an alternative. Yeah, just the just the ask, do you want to work seven days a week? Already my brain was like, <laughs> yeah, like we yeah, I, yeah, I don't think so. The global food market seems to be so interconnected. Uh, in, the, in the book, you talk about a Soviet grain purchase that spiked meat prices in the United States. We sold the United States sold a bunch of grain to the Soviet Union because of crop failure. Right. Meat cost more in the U.S. and then there were protests throughout the country because suddenly meat was expensive. I feel like that's not an interconnection that's easy to grasp or easy to see. It's sort of like how farms are so distant from our daily lives. We don't really think about how the food's made. We also don't think about how it moves around the world almost like chess pieces or, right. I don't know, risk pieces. I'm trying to think of a board game about food. Agricola? No, I, that's, <laughs> yeah. those are good analogies. Yes, and, and that example from the 1970s, there was a, basically a worldwide global famine in the 1970s, and American farmers were urged to step up and produce, and the United States did sell a huge amount of grain to the Russians. And yes, food prices and price of everything else, including oil, went up because OPEC in effect, cut us off. And that's still true today. In the 1970s and 1980s, as incomes began to rise globally, in part because the United States rebuilt Asia and Western Europe after World War II, by the 1970s, people living in places that had been demolished by World War II were back on a solid economic footing. And one thing historically is true, when human beings have money, they will buy meat. And that is a point at which American meat producers, who, who, again, since the colonial period had been shipping much of their product abroad, began systematically raising specific kinds of livestock that would satisfy these other outside global markets. For example, the Japanese, who really, really love fatty, marbled beef. Americans like very thin beef with no fat. And so much of our system is actually set up specifically to raise livestock that will meet the needs of a Japanese audience, of a Middle Eastern market that can be sold in the European Union. It's very complicated. And, of course, on top of all that, it's just the simple logistics of feeding 350 million people, almost all of whom don't raise their own food. Logistically, it's an extraordinarily complicated system. And the weird thing is, 
if, for example, you live in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago or any place else, just stop and think about how much food is everywhere. You know, you can go into a convenience store and there's gobs of food. It may be processed beyond belief, but there's food everywhere. People just don't realize that it's kind of miraculous. I, I, I'm in awe of it. Do I think it's perfect? Yeah. No. And when we were talking before about how people in Europe coming to America hundreds of years ago, they got to America and suddenly could eat a lot more meat. I mean, was that a drastic enough difference that people were moving to America to eat meat? You know what I mean? Or at least have enough to eat all of the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that yeah. is still true today. Nobody should kid themselves. Immigrants who are coming here are boggled by how much food we have. If you, Everybody should visit a third world country at some point in their life because you will figure out pretty quickly there's a big difference between a large urban society with lots of food and a mostly rural society without much food. It's an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. It, food is a uh, boy. We just take it for granted, and it's so cheap. It just kills me how cheap food is. We were talking a little bit before about how the American food supply is also feeding the world. And one amazing thing in the book is the idea that food keeps up our national security. Like the amount of factory farming we can do to feed the world keeps. Uh, in the Cold War, it kept countries from going communist. You have a quote in it from a general named Lucius Clay who says that the way to get a communist Europe was to make nations choose between being a communist on 1,500 calories and a believer in democracy on 1,000 calories. He was saying that just the amount of food we can make was the way to win the Cold War against the Russians. Uh, and that seems to still be true today, I would imagine, that the amount of food we can make helps keep the world at peace for us. I think that's true. Although, again, uh, after World War II, remember, much of the world lay in ruins. It's staggering. The real, to, even into the 1960s, much of Europe was still struggling to get a food system back to normal. And, of course, incomes are rising everywhere, particularly in China. People are probably sick of hearing about China, but the Chinese are, have embarked on a, an astonishing program to move people off the countryside and into cities. Their goal is to move most of the population into cities over the next 15 years, which is a whole bunch of people. And again, people don't make their food if they live in cities. So food is still a very important bargaining chip. But the better, for example, that China gets at it, and the more China invests globally, the less valuable our bargaining chip becomes. And for example, for since, oh my God, since the 1880s, Americans have invested in land in large parts of South America to raise livestock in order to make enough meat to send to the United States as well as other countries. But now the Chinese are busy buying up a whole lot of that land so that they have direct access to land for grazing livestock, but also for raising uh, livestock feed. You know, in another 20 so or so years, they'll be in a position to use their food system as a bargaining chip in the way we've been using ours for decades now. Again, you know, food and politics are so intertwined. As far as which food we're talking about, the book, I think, is primarily focused on cows and on pigs and on chicken. Is there any particular reason though those became our, I don't know, uh, meats of the country? Is that a way to put it? Let's, yeah, let's call it that. Meats of the country, yeah. The American meats. Like, why, why did goats lose? Yeah. Why did lambs lose? First of all, remember, the country was settled primarily for, by people from Europe. 
especially in the earliest stages of colonization by people who came from England or somewhere in what's called the British Isles. Yeah. And those people came with a long tradition of relying on dairy products, cheese. There's a reason you can buy really good cheese in England and much of Europe. So there, so there was a sense that people, people were accustomed to relying on beef, and hogs are ridiculously easy to raise. As I said during the, earlier, during the colonial period, they multiplied so quickly they were actually a nuisance. There was a bounty on them, you know, because there were just too many of them. The one, the one livestock that did not survive the transfer from Europe to the U.S. was sheep, because sheep are kind of stupid, and if you want to <laughs> keep them safe, you either have to fence them or you have to watch them constantly. Hey, a lot of our listeners easily. are sheep, okay? Hey. Are hey. they? All right. No, Sorry, everybody. Yeah. Okay, they're not stupid. They're, um, they don't move very quickly when a fox or some other predator is coming toward them. Let me put it that way. So, Thank you. Sheep <laughs> consumption, <laughs> lamb and mutton consumption didn't last long in this country because there simply wasn't enough labor to go around, in effect, to expend the labor t- to take care of them. So they fell off the dietary routine pretty quickly. And the three easiest and most efficient forms of livestock production were definitely cattle, hogs, and chickens. And that's what we've got, and that's what has been the case for years. Interestingly, in the last decade or so, Goat production has become much more important in this country because we have so many immigrants coming from the Middle East where goat is very, very common as a food. Oh, wow. So, the, you know, the livestock production system will vacillate, but in general, its underpinnings are cattle, hogs, and chickens, poultry. I thought it was also really interesting. I mean, you think about it, but then you, again, like you said, you don't really think about it, was the effect of grains and corn being really mostly made for the meat industry uh, and the way that it changed when it went from grass-fed to corn-fed and now, I guess, trending back to grass-fed, right? Right. right. That, that, that really surprised me, especially after I read Michael Pollan's book. A cornerstone of Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, for those who have not read it, is that he, he argues that the entire livestock production system rests on a foundation of cheap corn and corn is actually bad for livestock, and we really shouldn't feed it to them. We should just let them graze freely. Well, as it turns out, farmers in this country have been feeding corn to cattle since the colonial period. In the colonial period, for example, there weren't any highways and there weren't any trains, and the way you got cattle to an urban market or you know, any kind of market, a town, was to walk them. And if you just walk them miles and let them eat grass, they're going to arrive in pretty scrawny condition. So farmers grew corn, corn stations along the way so that the livestock could eat the corn. The kernels pass through because the, uh, a ruminant's digestive system won't actually uh, process the, the kernel itself. What it does is extract the nutrients that are in the kernel. And uh, so the, the idea of feeding corn to livestock, uh, that is as old as the republic itself. And wow. after World War II, Pollan argues in his book that after World War II, corn and livestock production became inextricably bound together because the government subsidized corn. That's not really what happened. What happened was 
cattle had been raised out in the plains and on grasses and had been grazing for four or five years, and then they would be sent to a farm and finished for about six months. World War II, a whole bunch of the western plains got plowed up and over to make room for airplane factories, munitions factories, urban and suburban developments. And as a result, by about 1960, instead of leaving cattle to graze for four or five years and then sending them to be finished, because there was so much less land, cattle were being taken off the grass after just a year and then being sent to a farm for finishing on corn for anywhere from six months to a year. So it's true that the grazing period has shortened significantly because we don't have nearly as much rangeland as we did 65 or 70 years ago, but we've been finishing cattle on corn since the first person got off the boat at Plymouth Rock or wherever it is they first got off. I guess it was somewhere there. I, I hope that's what they did immediately upon leaving the boat, just corn to a cow. <laughs> get the corn, get the corn. Get the corn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think first thing they did was say, my God, we've run out of beer. That's big news. Yeah, no, oh, but, yeah, yeah. but but also corn American. and cattle and hogs because hogs would trail after since the since the cattle basically excreted in their um, droppings the corn kernel everybody get, can get grossed out now the the hogs would come along behind them and root through the manure and oh, eat up the corn droppings. And it was a really nice cycle for a farmer. You could grow the corn, the cattle would essentially eat it and leave manure, and then you could move them to another part of the field and let the hogs, you know, rummage through the first part of the field. So it was an efficient system, believe it or not. Yeah, I, that's it's a food chain for sure. I mean, it's I don't know if I'd want to watch it, but it's a thing. Yeah, uh, well, it does make you rethink uh, hogs, right? I mean, that is not what hogs eat now, by the way. <laughs> but but that's what. But they will eat just about anything, which is why they were so easy to raise. And the other great thing about pork is that it takes very, very well to smoking and to brining in salt, and so it can be preserved for months and months. Beef it's, is harder to preserve. You can do it, but it doesn't take brining quite as well, but you can process them so that they'll last a long time without refrigeration, which is yeah. one reason, by the way, to get back to your question about why these three animals, that's one reason that poultry was not really um, eaten on a huge scale until the 20th century because poultry meat is really perishable. You can put it, you can put it in, a, in an earthen container with a lot of oil and put a lid on it, and it will keep for quite a while. You can't really smoke it the way you can pork. So yeah. Americans tended to only eat chickens when they slaughtered one. Right, yeah, only in the 20th century. And that's a really interesting thing in this, that it seems like meat is how we solved the question of how do we distribute food of all kinds to the country. From what I've read in your book, it's a thing where pork was very easy to transport, just preserved, and then also it turns out that cows were a way to move food while it's alive, essentially, instead of right. sending grain to people where rats eat some of it or you spill some of it or something like that. You just right. send a living cow, you make it walk to the people who are going to eat it, and then exactly. feed grain to the cow, which is, I hadn't even thought of that because I'm such a modern person. Yeah, well, I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> Until I researched this book, I had no clue. I was, I was flabbergasted. 
when I finally did start paying attention to food critique in Michael Pollan's book and the criticism about cheap corn, I thought, well, wait a second, that, you know, that, that whole equation just fell apart, at least in my mind, because it simply, it, it doesn't hold up historically. But yes, uh, the one thing I got to say is Americans have been remarkably efficient about building food logistics and, and getting food where it needs to go. That you can criticize it till you're blue in the face, but man, it works really well because when was the last time you saw empty food shelves other than the day before a hurricane is supposed to hit? Yeah, every grocery store I go into, I leave with a sense that America is just an endless fountain of food. Like we have enough, uh, if we have yeah. 27 jars of three kinds of peanut butter, we have everything we need. We're totally fine. But it's all logistics, and it seems like all the logistics came from moving meat from place to place. That's right. I, I think a great example, and the one that I elaborated on the book, because I thought it was such a good example, New York City, which until 1898 meant only the island of Manhattan, has long been the largest urban place in the United States. And imagine, say, 150 years ago, 160 years ago, before there was a national rail system, imagine feeding a million people every single day when none of them are growing their own food. I mean, just think about the logistics. There's no rail system. There's almost no roads. It, it, it's just extraordinary to me. It's, and, of course, the more efficient you become, the easier it is to live in an urban place, and the more people who live in an urban place, the more efficient the system has to be to make food. So it's a cycle that's real hard to break. If you want to have an urban society, there's just some price to be paid for it. And also, I'm amazed how we were able to build a city like New York with so many parts of this food system being relatively recent. You mentioned before that chicken was not something that people frequently ate until the 20th century, which blew my mind. Yeah. I borderline live on chicken. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But, but you talk about how it's hard to preserve. It's hard to, it or it was hard to make in mass quantities. And then once we figured out how... Apparently, it was mainly pioneered in Georgia. People figured it out. Right, and that was during the 1930s when the economy was collapsing, especially in the rural South, and some entrepreneurs said, why don't we see if we can out some way to raise chickens on a grand scale? And a lot of help for that project came from states' land-grant universities and from the Department of Agriculture, the, the necessary expertise. But commercial poultry production of the sort we have now, that did not happen until the 1930s and World War II really sped up the process because everything else was in short supply. Prior to that, chickens raised in the U.S. were raised only for eggs. Eggs are easy to transport, and of course they're almost pure protein. So it was, the chickens were being grown for eggs, and about the only people who ever ate chicken were farm families, and they ate them only after they slaughtered a hen who could no longer lay eggs. So, yeah, and, yeah. and here's the other weird thing about chicken. In our diets, mass production is that recent. And in 1987, poultry became our number one choice for meat protein. It, beef had always been number one, but we now eat more chicken than anything else, which is amazing to me. Oh, so I've kept up with the times. Good. Great. He's just, you're just so proud of being a modern dude. <laughs> <laughs> With but my iPhone and my dude. chicken. Right. Because <laughs> I, I, as I read that, I was like, of course, eggs don't run away. They don't really spoil uh, that fast. It's right. incredibly easy to move around. But 
once they figured out how to, because there's a stat in the book that apparently in Georgia, where, as you said, people in the 30s started to figure this out, in Georgia, in 1934, they made 400,000 chickens for eating. In 1939, five years later, they made 1.6 million. And then in 1945, a few years later, they made 30 million. Which I, I feel like the state just went from being cities with people in them to a civilization of chickens at that point. If you do those kind of numbers, how does that even work? It's crazy. And here is an interesting thing about all that, which I think makes it even, even more remarkable. Once the war broke out in Europe, long before the U.S. joined it, the United States started to gear up to supply material to the people that we thought were the good guys rather than the bad guys. And by the, sometime between 1939 and about 1941, a third, a third of the people who worked in agricultural jobs in Georgia had left to work in a factory. So all of that production took place even as the amount of labor shrunk dramatically. That's, that's amazing. And you write about how that changed practices for making food, too. Once there weren't as many human laborers to work on it, things got more industrial from there. Yes, I think that is a truly underappreciated fact, especially by people who criticize the food system. Since World War II, agricultural labor in this country has shrunk, not because people were mechanized out of jobs, but because there were alternative jobs. People left to go fight in the war by the millions they left farms, and they didn't come back. There was a GI Bill after the war, which meant that young kids who might have gone back and worked on a farm could easily go to college and take a job at one of the places like Boeing or some other place that was making armaments for the Cold War in the 1950s. So the labor shortage forced farmers to mechanize. They didn't have any choice. If they wanted to keep making food for people, they had no choice but to do it as mechanically and, you know, intensively without human beings as possible. And that was especially true for livestock production. People figured out how to do automatic feeding troughs because there was nobody there to slop the, the feed to the, to the animals anymore. That was a really important turning point, the loss of agricultural labor. Did the switch to troughs change the system of pigs eating cow poop? Was that, was that, oh, yes. did that change Oh, yes. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Just for my yeah. own knowledge. In, Good. Yeah. <laughs> in, in fact, um, yes, by that time, some companies like Quaker Oats, for example, had begun to manufacture commercial feeds. That really began in the 1920s, in part because urban demand was simply outstripping farmers' abilities to produce enough food to keep people fed. And, yeah, letting hogs trail around after the cattle, nobody could make hog meat fast enough, make pork fast enough. So, yes, people were no longer letting the hogs root about. Now, I guess on all these groovy organic farms, that's what they're doing. I, I don't know because I've never visited one. But, no, people, by that time, people were feeding specific kinds of manufactured feeds that were full of nutrients so the animal would reach a marketable weight faster. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. I don't know what your guys' favorite pictures on the internet are. One of mine is an illustration of a kid. It's like a 90s kind of book about the internet. It's a kid with a backwards hat who's surfing 
on a computer keyboard and he has a mouse in his hand and it's like the internet. Wow. Get that feeling with Squarespace. Whatever your next big idea might be, they can help you build a website to serve it. Plus, with their award-winning templates, you can make a beautiful website simply and intuitively. You add and arrange content with the click of a mouse. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade. You will suddenly find yourself represented online in a way that's even cooler than that kid surfing on a keyboard. And I know you're like, oh no, what if something goes wrong with my website? Don't worry. Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support can help you with any problem, no matter how technical or trivial seeming. Build your website, give it a unique domain, make it easy for visitors to find you by making your next move with a free trial at squarespace.com. Enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's CRACKED, C-R-A-C-K-E-D. It's right on the logo, folks. You got this. You're great. Squarespace, make your next move. If you're a fan of the Cracked Podcast, you have heard Matt Gorley on our show. He was on a few weeks ago. He was on again before that. And he's one of the funniest people in podcasting. Well, if you're a fan of him or a fan of his show, Super Ego, there's a new bonus episode for you exclusively on Stitcher Premium. It's an episode of Super Ego Cinema, where Dr. Matt Gorley, Dr. Jeremy Carter, and special guest Chris Tallman provide commentary for the 007 classic, The Man with the Golden gun i love james bond movies i can't wait to check it out you should check it out too just go to stitcherpremium.com slash superego and use promo code cracked at checkout to get a one month free trial so that's stitcherpremium.com slash superego s-u-p-e-r-e-g-o and use promo code cracked Speaking of marketable animals, you mentioned before that farmers are meeting demands in various countries, whether Japan wants different kind of beef than America. And also these uh, groovy farms are meeting a demand for organic foods or for a free range animal or something like that. How does a farmer specify an animal? Is it pure breeding or is it some kind of technical achievement we've made? Uh, well, there there are a couple of things that happened. One was that as urban demand grew, uh, particularly after World War II, when when the urban population really exploded, but you know it has never it's been relentless since 1800, but it really expanded after that. And uh, as demand grew and as labor decreased, farmers and various, let's just say, interested parties like land-grant schools and the Department of Agriculture realized that one way to streamline livestock production was to use genetics to simply breed the animals that were healthier, that had less fat and more meat. And that process has become increasingly sophisticated. And in the 1970s in particular, uh, in order to meet all these global demands, like, for example, the Japanese want really fatty cows, and as uh, various kinds of new genetic technologies were developed, producers systematically shifted over to, in effect, breeding cattle based on what amount to specifications from either a meat packer or a grocery chain. The animal needs to have X amount of fat, X amount of meat, it needs to weigh X amount, and the way to do that is, in effect, to breed it right into the livestock. So the cattle, sheep, and hogs that are, that are being raised today are com- 
literally different animals than they would have been 100 years ago. Very, very different animals. And they're, and they're designed for very specific purposes. If your market is Japan, you're going to use one specifically kind of bred deer. And if it's for an American market, you're going to use something completely different. With chickens, you say it's also a thing where they're very specifically codified. Like there's a kind that's a broiler that's X amount of weight and then a second and third tier, I think it was. Right, right. For for years, um, a, a roaster was the oldest, toughest chickens, you know, the, the ones that had lived the longest, whether they were male or female. And nowadays, the um, poultry product production is so streamlined or efficient or so specific that a chicken today honestly bears no resemblance to a chicken of 50 years ago. They, they've been bred specifically, so they have enormous breasts, you know, now that there's this big wing fad, the wings have to be bigger. So, yeah, that, if, well, here's a good yeah. way to test this proposition. If you go to a grocery store and just buy, say, a package of Tyson poultry, a, a package of chicken breasts, they're going to be one kind of thing. And then if you go to, say, a food co-op or a place like Whole Foods, you're going to discover that a conventional chicken breast is a, like the, the sort that Tyson sells, is about three times bigger than a chicken that's been raised in a very small flock Whoa. on a farm. They're still using a chicken that's been bred to be resistant to disease and those kinds of things. Is but it lit- literally three times bigger? They're not nearly as big. Yeah, yeah. How do either of you feel just as people about that, our ability to do that, our ability to change the shape of a chicken like that? Well... Nobody minds. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? If the price of chicken goes up, people bitch. And the whole idea of all this is to make as much meat as possible at the lowest cost possible because that's what people want. So that's what we give them. Let's face it. We're living in a strange age of biotechnologies. I just read this morning on Twitter, of course, that um, wombs for raising human beings are Someone's figured out how to make an artificial womb. Think about it. That's USA. <laughs> USA. I'm a full patriot yeah. this yeah, week. I don't know. You know, I'm I, doing yeah. it. I mean, there have been, it's not like nobody is not debating this. The first time someone said that they could clone a human being, there was a huge uproar. Well, I don't remember now what animal it was that was first cloned. I think it was a cow about 25 years ago. And there's a lot of debate about it, but we've opened the door and we're probably not going to go back out of it. The one I know of. It was a sheep, I think, from what I remember. But I'm not totally. Dolly. It was Dolly. Dolly. You're right. You're right. It was a sheep. Dolly. It was Dolly the sheep. Right. Uh, For all our sheep listeners out there. Yes. Um, Another shout out to (laughs) the sheep community. (laughs) I want to personally, I would like to clone myself because I would like to be in charge of all universes. So I think it would be a good thing to clone myself. Not if we're not first, buddy. Right? <laughs> we're doing it. That is interesting. That I think over time, as consumers, we've gained more and more and more knowledge about what happens yeah. with food. And I feel like there is a trope that I had learned in particular in school, in particular with Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, where it was an idea that, oh, consumers received a bunch of information about how meat was made, and then they never wanted to eat meat again. And <laughs> fascinatingly in your book you say that the jungle caused a rise in beef consumption it just made people want to eat beef that they knew came from a better place (laughs) than the beef that Sinclair was writing about where it was just a horror show 
what rose actually was uh, consumption of fresh beef because nobody wanted to eat anything that was in a can because they were afraid that was the worst thing. So mm. no matter how much fuss we raise, we always go back. McDonald's is McDonald's because not because somebody put a gun to anybody's head and said, eat that quarter pounder. <laughs> McDonald's is McDonald's because everybody wants the quarter pounder. We are a carnivorous people. Evolutionarily speaking, we evolved to be protein hungry. We, we're eat eaters. I have all respect for, ve- well, vegans are just simply nuts. I understand mm. vegetarianism, but, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That is. You know, yeah. we eat, we're meat eaters. We're meat eaters. <laughs> I often think, what would, what would happen if McDonald's simply closed? That would alter the livestock production chain, every single thing. Because it uses chicken, beef, and pork. And potatoes. And if it shut down, it would be weird. That's for sure. The population of America and the world, it sounds like, eats a lot more meat than they used to. But there is a change in diet a lot. And I think maybe it's due to education about the meat system. uh, Or like the way that meat has been developed. Do you think that that could have an impact on maybe the system as it has been built? It is having an impact. For example, you, if you've, you may have noticed or not, my brain tends to you know, zoom in on stuff like this. A number of processors have decided to stop using antibiotics, for example, right? And gestation stalls, many large producers have stopped using those. So it's clear that American consumer demand, here's a point that I make in the book, although maybe not overtly enough. Consumers are driving this bus. It's not agribusiness. It's not grocery chains. We're the ones who want grocery chains to have 55 kinds of ketchup. So that's what we've got. And so if consumers say, look, I don't want antibiotics, well, guess what? Antibiotics are being phased out. And it is making a difference. This this shift in American attitudes is making a difference. Having said that, it's worth noting that on average, I, I think it's 205 pounds a year Americans per capita, this is per capita, eat 205 pounds of meat, beef, pork, and poultry a year. When I, when I was writing the book, I decided to keep track of how much I eat. turns out I, I eat about 25 pounds a year, which means somebody out there is eating an incredible amount of meat. Despite Michael Pollan, despite all the complaints, we're still chowing down per capita, 205 pounds a year. Man, that's a lot of meat. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like a lot of meat. So, we, we brought you on to let you know that I am picking up the slack for you. And, uh, you <laughs> it's me personally. Oh, uh, this modern guy and his modern chicken. <laughs> well, I, I got to admit, I was a little shocked when I kept track of my own consumption that I... I knew I didn't eat a lot, but I kind of thought I was normal, you know. So all, all I can think is, who in the world? How can anybody eat that much meat? That, that is nutty balls, if you ask me. That's a, that is a lot of meat, man. But again, <laughs> somebody's keeping McDonald's open 24 hours a day, right? The system changes in response to consumers. But as I know, my example was the chicken McNugget. Chicken, one reason poultry became so popular so quickly in the 1970s and 80s is because it was perceived as healthier than beef and pork. And that's one reason McDonald's introduced the chicken McNugget, which, of course, has almost no chicken in it. But you could eat a chicken McNugget and say, look, I'm eating healthy meat. 
Wait, it has no chicken in it? Even though you're really just eating <laughs> a little glob of stuff. We want what we want. We do. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, when you say a chicken McNugget has almost no chicken in it, I was not aware of that at all. I, <laughs> you, you really shocked. You yeah. really shocked Alex right now. I know there's like yeah. seven pounds of breading around it, but I figured there exactly. was chicken in there. Somebody talked me into taking a bite of one of those ones because <laughs> I know people who are just addicted to them. Was the person carrying a gun or no? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. I was trying to be nice. I was at somebody's house and they were like, "Oh, we're going to eat chicken nuggets," and I said, "You know, just taste one. Just taste one." I don't get what the fuss is about. I got it. Oh. I'm pretty open to eating all kinds of garbage. There's nothing I like better than a package of Oreos and a quart of milk, but I don't get the thing about chicken nuggets at all. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you know about the McRib and its origins and its history? Oh, man. That appeared in the 1980s, as did the chicken nuggets, Yeah. when beef per- consumption really plunged. And so every fast food chain was trying to figure out what can we add to the menu. That, by the way, was one of the reasons for the Egg McMuffin. And I personally think Egg McMuffins are sublime. But in the late 80s, yes. in an effort to introduce something that was not made necessarily with beef, these, these ribs came in, which can be either beef or pork. And they didn't... Well, partly because they're really messy to eat. And, and ribs, the whole idea of the barbecue rib thing is pretty regional. You know, if you live in the Carolinas, it's one thing. If you live in Kansas City, it's something different. So it didn't go over well at all. <laughs> at all. But it was an attempt to satisfy consumer demands for novelty, for, you know, something that would get people to come in. And it keeps coming back, right? Yeah, better luck with yeah. quarter pounder. Yes, exactly. There's a piece in The All in uh, 2011 where they tried to build a theory around why the McRib keeps coming back and not, especially because, like you say, some people are very devoted to them. My friend Adam Ton Brown, incredibly devoted yeah. to the McRib, will never let it go. Other <laughs> yeah. people don't need it. They could take or leave it. And The All was trying to figure out why it is cyclical, and they were arguing that it comes back when pork prices are low, and that you have to look at McDonald's as less of a restaurant and more of just a giant corporate stock trader or commodities trader in this case. And so they're just bringing the McRib back when prices are low. That is actually a pretty darn good theory. Plus, plus novelty. Never, never underestimate the American appetite for novelty. You know, whether it's clothes or gadgets or beer or meat. So I I think that's actually a great theory. I wish I'd thought of that. They mentioned in the article that peep that it also like engaged people. It was almost like an interactive thing where people would be like, "Oh, it's back! Oh, like it, oh, it's it's only back for a little bit. I guess I better get it." You know, like before it's gone again. Like it's like a way to get people like paying attention to you for like that yeah. new my, novelty. My, here's my comical story about that. Do you you know who um, Ozzy Osbourne? You know who he is? Yes. Oh, of course. No, you guys yeah. are too young. The family did a reality show a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Anyway, Jack Osborne was a teenager. Jack and his sister, Kelly, were in the car, and she's driving, and Jack says, Oh, my God, look, he's pointing at a McDonald's billboard. He said, Look, look, the McRib is back. We've got to stop right now. And Kelly looks at him like, Oh, my God, you fool. <laughs> they cracked me up. cracked he was very. He was genuinely excited. That's that's the thing that I think that they also they definitely count on, and like I'm yeah. sure that also helped the McRib at the time because yeah. you know the Osbournes were like, 
hey, the McRib, I gotta go get it. And then everybody yeah, else is like, yeah, 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 what is, that's not, that's a rare thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he was, he was jacked, no pun intended, because, you know, there it was, and he knew it wouldn't be there for long. And it's a great marketing, right? It's yeah. smart business. I feel like with reality TV, a lot of it is sort of written. A lot of it's producers telling people to do stuff. I am confident that was not written. That was authentic. Jack Osborne no. was, was all of us no. and was like, the McRib is back. It's time. Yes. It was Exactly. It was clearly <laughs> totally spontaneous. And his, sister, his sister's disgust that he would be so plebeian was also completely spontaneous. It was a pretty funny moment. <laughs> and now you know that I'll watch reality TV. What can this is this is why we had the interview. Actually, we just wanted to find out like, does she watch the right. Osbournes or not? But thank you. <laughs> On the internet, I feel like right now some of the most popular videos or or things that people follow online are actually like videos of people making food. And like, just because we're in the internet world, we we know like which ones are like the most popular. And like right now, a ton like there's just a whole section for just food, like watching food get made. So it it is yeah. like not just it's it's an entertainment factor as well. It is a commodity. Yes, but it can also work the other way. I don't know if you either one of you remember a few years ago, I think it was in 2012, the pink slime uproar. Yes, I do. Yeah, that yeah. whole pink slime thing was really provoked almost entirely by a Janie Oliver TV segment that was bogus from start to finish, but it went viral almost immediately on the Internet via YouTube and that is how that whole thing got started. So the internet can bite you in the butt or be your best friend, one or the other. Very true. Pink slime comes up toward the end of the book. And pink slime, for people don't, who don't know, it's lean, finely textured beef. And if right. you haven't seen the videos, it's coming out of a metal tube in like yeah. a snake fashion and just coiling. And it doesn't, it doesn't look totally like, normal. Like a big pink worm. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and the aesthetics are what they are in a factory, but it's also beef. It's it's still made from a cow just like the rest of the beef is. That's right. And what's even, I think that's the reason I ended the book with the pink slime episode. It's, it's the last thing. It's in the conclusion was it just struck me as so bizarre that that particular technology turned into this internet meme of, oh my God, they're feeding us garbage, when the whole point of it, the entire point of creating the technology was to use every single bit of meat on the carcass. My analogy is the same way that cooks for millennia have, you know, soaked a, a cooked a, a, a bone long enough to get all the meat off of it. What, what, what the technology does is, in effect, use centrifugal force to just simply remove every last bit of meat from a bone. And it is beef. It's actual, honest-to-God beef. And the technology even removes all the gristle and fat. So it is 100% beef. And then it gets mixed with hamburger to make hamburger, by the way, actually better because you're using all the cuts of the meat, not just the lesser cuts that are usually make, used to make hamburgers. So this thing that was actually making it possible for people to have reasonably priced hamburger turned into, you know, an enemy of the people. And I got to admit, I was very happy when ABC settled for whatever it was, $70 million a couple of months ago in yeah. the lawsuit against them. Because people went bankrupt. People who had built their companies went bankrupt. It was a heartbreaking story for me. 
Yeah, there was one. It was an ABC News report about yes. pink slime and, and the dangers, whether or not there are any of it. And Disney and ABC had to settle for $177 million. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. There was a process to use in the 1970s, and the federal government banned it because the fear was that the existing technology would leave bone fragments in. So this guy named Eldon Roth in the 1990s came up with a way that would completely eliminate that fear, used a little bit of peroxide, or is it bleach or peroxide? He used just a tiny bit to uh, make sure that there were no bacteria in it. He started with nothing, built a huge company, and he was financially ruined by what amounted to Jamie Oliver's stunt and a lot of bogus reporting. It was uh, it's the kind of thing that makes me see both sides of the story. Yeah. Know, that, that technology had been used for years. It was perfectly safe. It's 100% beef. There's nothing wrong with it. If you've eaten a hamburger in this country, you have eaten it. And these slimy news reports, pun intended, managed to destroy people. It was a sad thing. And it shows, I think, the power of consumer movements. It showed the power of this so-called, you know, the food system is broken movement. And it show, certainly showed the power of Internet and social media. And it seemed like it was a very powerful instance of people just seeing something that happens in the production line of food and being stunned that that's even going on. When you say they worked out a process so it involves bleach or peroxide, the instincts, I think, for people hearing that is, oh, so it's poison. But it is not poison? They've checked this out. The weird thing is meat already contains that naturally. and It was ammonia. It was ammonia, right? All he was doing was eliminating the possibility that there would be any bacteria in it. Yeah, right. What other parts of the meat production process would be most surprising to people? One from the book that jumped out to me was the uh, manure floods in North Carolina in the 90s based oh, around yeah. pork production. Yeah, that was that was a big turning point. In the, in the 1980s and 1990s, entrepreneurs in North Carolina decided to invest in hog production. There had never really been any systematic large-scale hog production. Obviously, Southerners have been raising hogs for generations. But um, they started building big processing plants and then went the next obvious step, which was to actually start raising the hogs in big so-called factory farm systems. 1995 or 96, there was a period of torrential rains during the summer and many of the manure lagoons, which is how the manure is stored when you're raising animals on a grand scale, many of those flooded and wreaked all kinds of havoc, as you can imagine. It, it was pretty horrible, and it did draw national attention to the way hogs were being raised in the United States. Up until then, there had been, I don't, I'm not sure that anybody had even realized that hog production had become so large scale and the manure was I don't know you know I certainly never thought about it where you know where does all that manure go and that became a moment when food activists were able to start pressuring state and the fe state governments and the federal government to improve livestock management and manure management and of course it immediately became let's just get rid of these factory farms but again if you get rid of the factory farms are you prepared to pay 30 bucks a pound pork? Probably not. Remember the bacon mania a couple of years ago when everything had bacon beer, bacon donuts? Yes. You can yeah. only do that when bacon is dirt cheap. If you're paying 30 bucks a pound for it, you're not going to be doing stuff like that. So that, that was an interesting moment.
very interesting moment. And it was a tipping point. Sure. Reading the internet a lot, as we do professionally, I feel like the bacon mania happened about at the same time as Pink Slime. I had the internet telling mm. me, oh, beef is a weird snake coming out of a factory yeah. that's crazy. Go get bacon. And bacon should be <laughs> on everything you touch or consume. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Believe they it, but yeah. that is the way it's worked. In the 1970s, beef consumption plummeted because people were convinced that meat was giving them, beef was giving them heart attacks. People didn't really like pork because it was associated with being poor or being a truck driver. And chicken was seen as the most healthy form of protein. And that's why chicken is number one and beef is number two and pork is number three today. But it's true. By the way, when the, when the manure thing happened in North Carolina, that's right around the same time of the Jack in the Box episode in Washington State when some burgers at a Jack in a Box were not cooked properly, and some people became ill because the beef contained a certain kind of E. coli bacteria, and a little kid actually died. And, and then Oprah Winfrey said that she would never eat meat again, and Texas cattle producers sued her, and she won the case, thank God, because it really was a free speech, speech issue. But it's true. You know, we, we vacillate on these cycles, and it, there's a reason that vegetarianism is so popular right now. It's because a lot of people are convinced that no kind of meat can possibly be safe or be healthy for you, that it's got to be bad for you. So, as I say, we, we Americans, are we've never met a fad we didn't like. That's true. I think uh, I will say, like, having read your book and being a vegetarian, I'm still not planning on getting a burger anytime soon. But it's interesting just to just to, like, understand exactly how everything built up, like under just yeah. it really did feel like it was very much like you said, you came at it as a historian. It was the history, even like the recent history. I remembered the pink slime and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and like thinking about yeah. how much it affects us to this very day. And, and the pink slime story, as it was told in the media, was obviously very, very lopsided. You know, it was a, the epitome of fake news, I'm sorry to say. I have always said that the one thing, by the time I was finished with this book, and it took seven years of my life, by the time I was finished, the one thing I really wanted people to understand was food is complicated. And in our society, because we are so affluent, it is extraordinarily complicated. Again, I, I sympathize with both sides of the so-called food debate, but historical context can really help people appreciate the complexity of contemporary America. Yeah, and also in terms of fads, for, for one thing, I think what is a food fad is hard to define. Like, I feel like it stops being a fad just once it's been around long enough and, and been a thing long enough, but also one that comes up in this is a recent one called the small planet movement uh do you talk a bit about what that is you mean diet for a small planet you mean diet for a small planet yeah uh yeah that idea that, yes the I, this idea first surfaced the diet for a small planet is the title of a book that was published in i think 1971 and it's by the way i never read the book but somehow it filtered through to me because right around 1972 or 1973, I decided to eat meat. And the idea is very simple. So much grain to feed cattle to produce one pound of beef, and you could be using that land or that grain to feed human beings. Now, that's a real simplistic take, because cattle can eat things that 
human beings don't eat, but it's certainly true that we do use land to raise grain to feed livestock. And yes, we could stop doing that and use that land to produce, well, what would Americans eat? More broccoli? Could we use it for another mall? Could we use it to make whatever it is that goes into Twinkies? I, you know, so, but that's the idea behind the diet for a small planet, that livestock production, we're using resources to make meat when we could just use the resources to make another kind of food more directly and we would feed more people. I'm, I'm curious how, we, we've talked a bit about it already, but how valid that argument is. Because as you say, cows eat things that we won't and, and what would we turn it into? When, when the woman who wrote this book wrote it, that was right at the, in the moment in the 70s when there was a global food famine, which is when Americans were being urged to produce more food, blah, 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 blah. So the idea resonated. The problem with it is that not everything that cattle can eat can also be eaten by humans. For example, you can feed cattle pretty well using almond husks. You know, human beings cannot eat almond husks, right? Or sorghum. Human beings cannot eat sorghum. We, we'd have to process the crap out of it in order to eat it, but cattle can eat it directly. And much of the grain that's grown for livestock can be grown on land that can't be used for other purposes other than building more suburban houses or another shopping mall, and clearly we don't need any more of those. So the, the argument makes sense. It is certainly true that eating meat is a relatively inefficient way to get protein. There's no way to get around that. On the other hand, human beings like meat. So there are arguments both ways. And obviously it hasn't stopped anybody from eating meat. So the idea has been around a long time. It surfaces periodically, and it never really changes anything. But as you said, like there is now, I think, with more information about our, our meat vegetarianism has become uh, much more prominent. Same with veganism. It's become much more prominent. I, I don't know if it's a fad or if it's like a change, like a permanent change in the diet. I certainly think that I can just tell you that Americans' diets have changed dramatically since I was a little kid. When the 1950s were the heyday of convenience foods in the sense that my mom, who had a house full of kids to feed, really wanted to open a can of corn or a can of tomatoes rather than actually growing the tomatoes and then canning them herself. So it's certainly true in the 50s. I would say the average person, including myself, I'm a pretty average American, ate lots of food that I wouldn't even, like creamed corn, oh, my God, it's disgusting out of a can. It's not a real household staple anymore. And nobody that I knew have had ever even heard of olive oil, let alone arugula. So... The one thing about American diets is we have an extraordinary abundance, but, it, but that brings us back to the point that we started with, which is we have an incredibly efficient food system. So we can eat anything we want. So you're right. It's kind of hard to decide what's a fad when pretty much everything is available. If you change the food system, that wouldn't necessarily be true anymore. If we have some sort of apocalyptic event, if the North Korea decides to launch a nuclear weapon at... Um, San Jose Valley in California, but I tell you what, we're all going to be eating different diets because there's a lot of our food coming from there. We want what we want, and we've figured out how to get it, and then, in true American fashion, we complain about it. I'm glad you mentioned the way we used to eat in a few earlier generations because there's an article, article we have on Cracked called 
six gross foods from a 50s cookbook that we taste tested. <laughs> and it's this cookbook where they're promoting, there's a meal called Super Supper Salad Loaf, which is a huge roll of bologna. And then it's got a bunch of peas and onions stuffed into the middle of it. Oh. And then you do like, uh, there's one called Snowy Chicken Confetti Salad, which is like chicken confettied into jello. And then it's this big mound and you put it at lettuce under it. Yeah, like and that's a ton of work for something real gross. <laughs> that's what we found. Yeah, it's... Well, but, and you know what? Those, those things I can actually remember the chicken confetti salad. How was it? Believe it or not. I, don't, I didn't know any different. I probably, I wouldn't need it now, but I'm sure I thought it tasted just well. There yeah. were lots of foods and lots of manufacturers who wanted Americans to buy them, and Americans were buying them because there were children everywhere who had to be fed, and you could watch TV rather than go grow your own food. So, you know, people love to criticize the 1950s, and God knows it was not a nirvana, but societies are what they are. 150 years ago, Americans ate meat constantly, and mostly what they did was fry the crap out of it. On the other hand, Twinkies were invented in the 1950s. I think Twinkies, for me, epitomize everything that's bad about the food system. They are disgusting. I, if I could ban them, I would. And yet, here they are, 50-plus years later, people are still eating those suckers. Yeah, I felt it was, uh, on the other hand, I think Oreos were developed around that. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably so, right. So, <laughs> you know, the Twinkies and Oreos, uh, you get the flip side of both. <laughs> you you got to dip, the, the way to eat an Oreo, you yes. got to dunk it in milk and let, them, let it absorb the milk. Oh. And by the way, yeah, I yeah. will tell you this year, I took my grandson to a county fair and we ate deep fried Oreos. Oh, those are so good. They are <laughs> delicious. They're, they're wrapped in funnel cake batter. They're delicious. I go to this, the Minnesota State Fair any chance I can get and I get all the fried food I can get of like deep fried Oreos, <laughs> yeah. deep fried Snickers. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deep fried Oreos were a revelation. I thought they sounded horrible and then I taste one and I yeah, hooked. it yeah. it like changes, but it's also the same thing that you know so oh, well. Oh man, <laughs> better, but it's even better. It's yeah. better, yeah. It's the fried. It's so nice to talk so to someone good. who's been to a state fair, so they get it. Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's my it's one of my happy places is the state fair. Um, so yes, I get it. <laughs> if I may close with a, just another very elegant USA, USA, <laughs> USA. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Carmen Angelica and to Maureen Ogle, and my thanks to you for sticking around for footnotes. Obviously, we link off to In Meat We Trust, Maureen's fascinating book. We also link to The Omnivore's Dilemma, a very famous food book from 2007 that Maureen brings up in the episode. And there's other links celebrating the McRib, pink slime, and every other meat that makes America, America. Speaking of America, Cracked is spanning the lower 48 states this coming Saturday, September 9th. Two live podcasts in one day. But Alex, how would you do two shows in New York and L.A.? I'm not. Here's what's happening. On September 9th at 11.30 a.m., we're doing a live Cracked podcast at the Now Hear This Festival in Manhattan. And on September 9th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Tom Ryman and Abe Epperson are doing the first ever live episode of Cracked Movie Club at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles, tackling the 1991 Catherine Bigelow masterwork, Point Break. 
If you are anywhere near New York or L.A., you can't miss those shows. Go to nowhearthisfest.com for passes to our New York show. Go to UCB Sunset's website for a ticket to Cracked Movie Club's L.A. show. And if you're not near New York or L.A., tweet at me with your city that you'd like to see a live show in. For real, we spreadsheet those requests. I have a big doc. We take them seriously. Also, I reminded listeners about that last week. And since then, let me tell you, I have been flooded with live show requests from Toronto, which means Canada is now a front runner for a future live Cracked podcast. That would be our first ever international show, which tickles me. I think that's fun. And if you're in America and want the U.S. to catch up to those crafty Canadians, hit me up and say so. If there's two things we love in America, it's meat and winning contests. Let's do this. Anyway, in other news, we have Cracked Podcast t-shirts for sale at podswag.com. We also opened up a donation page on cracked.com itself. Occasionally, people ask us if they can give a cash thank you to our ad-supported free website. That donation page is live on cracked.com. You'll find it if you go there. And if you donate or if you buy a fun t-shirt at Podswag, that is a great way to give our site a little boost if you'd like to. We're also podcasting like crazy over here. I mentioned Cracked Movie Club before. We've also got season one of Cracked Gets Personal running now through October. Find both those shows on your podcasting app of choice. And watch this space for info about the new podcast we're launching next month, along with future big, big news. And I mean big, big news. From there, it's all coming. And as far as this show goes today, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Hear them on Daptone Records. Our episode was engineered and co-produced by Brett Rader. Find Brett at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. If you love this episode, oh man, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A cutting-edge technological marvel that most of us use to share pictures of our food. Find me and my brunches under the name at Alex Schmitty on Twitter. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. How about that? Talk to you then. I'm Brian Safi. And I'm Erin Gibson. And our show, Throwing Shade, just moved to Earwolf. We take a look at women's issues and LGBT issues and make them real stupid. We make them real dumb. You'll be very insulted by what we have to say. And we have great guests, so come listen to us. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. We also talk about clip-on earrings a lot, where to get a great facial. And wigs. And a lot of wigs. It's everything you asked for and nothing you asked for. All in the same package. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.